Greetings, friends, comrades, citizens, proletarians of every persuasion, and homo sapiens everywhere. You are listening to Democracy or Die, a force for authentic democracy, as it was understood by those humans who actually coined the word long ago and far away, not as a swamp of corruption, intrigue, and deceit, but an orderly, impartial, transparent process in which every citizen has an equal voice and money is irrelevant. And I'm your host, instigator, fellow traveler, and collaborator, Paul Rosenfeld, the diminutive and graying Spartacus of the wage slaves, a worker determined to live in an authentic democracy or die trying. The stay at Valhalla was brief. My suicidal tendencies have been duly noted, and management did not wish to assume the legal liability which attended my continuing care. Valhalla is a local New York institution which accepts federal prisoners conditionally when the transaction suits them. It is apparent that I was literally more trouble than I was worth. My wife could have told them this right from the start, although she has since chosen to stick with me, despite all the bad things which have been said about me. But the Valhalla warden and prison psychologist, who bore an uncanny resemblance to Nurse Ratchet, had reached an understanding, and it was determined that I would be returned to the custody of the federal government ASAP. They had no use for me, but, of course, didn't bother to inform me of their decision. Rarely does anyone tell you anything in prison. If you're lucky, they remember to throw a bologna sandwich at you occasionally. So it came as a complete surprise when the federal marshals appeared at my cell door at 5 a.m. and told me to get dressed. Call me paranoid if you like, but my first thought was that these guys had been sent to disappear me. After all, the feds had already chosen to misrepresent my modest pyrotechnics as a high-powered bomb and me as a terrorist. Who's to say that their disproportionate response to my principled political activism might not also include relocating me to either an offshore black site or perhaps even a landfill somewhere? As I hurriedly prepared to depart, I asked the Valhalla guard if he'd ever seen these guys before, and was told that they were regulars, so this relaxed me a tiny bit. As a new fish, I simply didn't understand that prison transit often takes place in the wee hours, and advance warnings are exceedingly rare. You are a piece of government property and will be treated accordingly. The marshals simply wished to beat the traffic heading into Manhattan. They escorted me to the loading dock, where I traded in my orange jumpsuit for the street clothes I'd worn at the time of my entry a week prior, but also a lifetime. The filthy t-shirt and jeans represented a little protection from the nighttime October chill, as my fellow passengers and I, shackled and shivering, boarded the BOP van bound for the Manhattan Federal Courthouse. Shackles! Like many things in prison, are an acquired taste. 
Today I wear chains as easily as my dog accepts her collar. But there were some difficult moments in the beginning. Gliding slowly down the West Side Highway during rush hour in a fully packed van with grated windows and padlocked doors is claustrophobia-inducing even without the added insult of chains. I suspect Roman galley slaves had far more freedom of movement. I was on the verge of a panic attack during much of the ride from White Plains, but managed to hold it all together and exchange some pleasantries with my neighbor, a slender, Buddha-like figure holding a bottle of asthma medicine in his delicate, manacled hands. Mike was a white-collar criminal, really a no-collar criminal, I suppose. Well, let's say Hawaiian print. He'd been on a years-long vacation in Europe and Asia when the feds caught up with him, all funded, apparently, by some sort of illegal internet activity. I know nothing about the details, but have to respect anyone who's found a way out of the rat race without using a gun. If he was scamming idiots or skimming nickels and dimes off some large institution, I say more power to him. Better an electronic bandit than a penniless peon in this capitalist anarchy of ours. Mike was 20 years my junior, but I automatically had some paternal transference because he exuded calm and knowledge. He was the opposite of my deer-in-the-headlights routine. Mike was a hibernating squirrel, complacently awaiting spring. A jailhouse lawyer and computer hacker, he was admirably adapted to his environment, something no one is ever likely to say about me. His cache of nuts and his mate would be waiting when the snow melted. I asked for a legal prognosis and explained the charges as best I could. Mike said I should have simply used gasoline and passed on the black powder. The feds would have had less to work with. He didn't chastise me for my bleeding-heart foolishness, however, though I'm sure his own practical soul could never entertain such an absurdity as self-immolation. Mike's professional opinion was that I was probably looking at a year and a day, despite all the terrorism hoopla, which was really just window dressing. Probably nothing more than that. He was looking at a few years himself. But there was a view of the mountains at the New Mexico prison he was designated for, his commissary account would always be full, and his woman could be expected to visit weekly. Mike was ready for winter. The basement of the Manhattan Federal Courthouse at 500 Pearl Street is an up-to-date dungeon. Windowless and gray, but clean and well-ventilated. Sometimes they even feed you, but not always. It's hit or miss on that point. In a prior life, decades previously, I once served with a crew of highly trained wage slaves, restoring the gold leaf and elaborate finishes of the courtroom ceilings. Spend five or ten years staring at ceilings like this, and you'll likely end up requiring spinal surgery. I know I did. But we must make sacrifices in the name of art and justice both. The bullpen here provided my first proper preview of the general population of federal prisoners. The inhabitants of the psych ward at Valhalla may not have been wholly representative, a little too white and a little too wacky. It was a psych ward, I believe, although this distinction was lost on me at the time. Seems I'm often unable to distinguish 
between what's normal and what's crazy. Here in the basement of Pearl Street, it was the standard Bureau of Prisons melting pot, many shades of tan and several different languages. Again, I thought of Imperial Rome, a full panoply from the provinces. Barbarians, perhaps, but it's all a matter of perspective. To me, they were just fellow victims. And, as Orwell said, if there's hope, it lies with the proles. Animals and proles are free, unlike their brainwashed brethren in the party, Ingsoc or otherwise. Across from me, a trio of good-natured, fair-skinned slobs lounged on one of the benches. Seeming very much at home, they looked more as though they were in a nightclub than a jail. They were amiable, but their English was broken. Conversation was somewhere between difficult and impossible. At one point, however, the phrase Russian Mafia did come up, and we all had a good long laugh. Many a truth. Next to me was a young muscle-bound black man, an ex-marine going by the name of Bull. And they were also, as always, an assortment of mid-toned characters all speaking Spanish, but quite prepared to indulge a linguistically handicapped gringo. I found this to be true almost everywhere I went. Folks rarely discriminate against the endangered indigenous population. Still, there is a pecking order. I knew I was supposed to be tight-lipped, spies everywhere and whatnot, but I could never maintain this stance for long. I'm an open book, always have been. Seeking wisdom from my wizened peers, Bull assured me I was probably in Manhattan to receive some additional charges and another perp walk. He said the initial appearance was merely for the holding charges, but with a terrorist trophy like me, the prosecutor would undoubtedly want a second, better photo op. Despite Mike's earlier predictions of leniency, it was the unanimous opinion of the assembled company that as an enemy of the state, I'd probably never see daylight again. I did understand that this was mostly playful ribbing, but still, who knows? In typical form, I initiated a discussion on the subject of prison suicide. What was the best means for offing oneself behind bars? This led to much jovial banter regarding the relative merits of blade and noose. Ah, good times. We laugh so we won't cry. It was a long day. They always are. But in the end, I never went upstairs. Never got to see how my paintwork was holding up. It turned out Manhattan Federal Court was just a way station for me a convenient hub for prison transit in the metro area. My real destination, as determined by Nurse Ratchet at Valhalla, was the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, a federal holding facility, my happy home for the next 10 months. <laughs> Sometime after dark, during the evening rush hour, we shackled up for the van ride to MDC, over the Brooklyn Bridge and through Flatbush, there's a special poignancy evoked traveling through the great city in chains. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's real. My fellow passengers, however, young soldiers all, felt none of this sadness, seemingly. With the radio tuned to WBLS and the hip-hop throbbing, the entire van swayed to the beat as they sang along to their favorite tunes. 
I think it's touching how the marshals almost always accommodate the musical taste of their charges. At first, I found this scene confounding, but then it hit me. This ritual and others like it are nothing more than an obligatory rite of passage for young men from the hood. As youths, we will endure almost anything in the name of social assimilation and advancement. These young men were gangsters. They were going to get rich or die trying. Either option was vastly preferable to working at Amazon. And who am I to say otherwise? Once, four decades prior, I had aspired to nothing greater than a place on the floor of a drilling rig. The work was filthy and dangerous, but there was a sense of pride and belonging. We were Marlborough men. As youths, we'll do anything to belong. A lifetime later, I was quite willing to die, if necessary, in the name of not belonging. I would at least expire with my dignity intact if I successfully expressed my utter contempt for this suicidal social catastrophe we mistakenly call democracy. Plutocracy and democracy share a suffix, and that's all. Entirely different animals. In the loading bay at MDC, the marshals removed our leg irons with one officer expressing his displeasure at an instance of government goods damaged in transit. With the shackles over-tightened, one of my peers had suffered some bruising. The marshal wanted to know which of his colleagues at the courthouse was responsible. Who did this? Was it a stupid-looking white guy? You can be honest. The relationship between captor and captive is complicated. There are elements of Stockholm Syndrome, survivor's guilt, and garden-variety sadism all mixed together, not to mention plenty of racism. The marshal genuinely felt bad, or at least wanted us to believe he did. It's hard to know which. From the loading bay, they buzzed us through the door to reception. Strip-searched, particle-scanned, and outfitted with brown jumpsuits, we then completed a lengthy intake questionnaire with the two-inch stub that passes for a pencil in prison. My peers coached me on this. Mike had persuaded me that a long history of illegal drug abuse would bolster my insanity defense. So, like a spy learning his cover, I accepted a tutorial on the varieties of illegal substances which might have led to my various presumed psychoses. In truth, however, I've never enjoyed anything harder than the occasional shot of whiskey or a tiny bit of pot. On the same page as my drug history, it asked if I wished to receive psychiatric therapy. Because I'd never been to a federal prison before, I actually imagined this might be a serious question, and I gratefully answered yes. For years, decades, my wife had been trying to get me in front of a shrink. Better late than never, right? Perhaps this might even have saved me from the gnarly scar and nightmarish voice that came with my botched throat slicing a few weeks later. Forms completed, we were interviewed one at a time by a white-haired, grandfatherly CEO who successfully conveyed an impression of empathy. It is surely a supreme irony that our government routinely pushes citizens to the point where suicide appears their only option and then engages in an elaborate charade of attempting to stop them. 
It's Orwellian, even, I would say. In the name of national security, we manufacture and deploy nuclear weapons that may well extinguish all life on Earth. And in the name of justice, we routinely lock up decent people whose only real crime is that they haven't found an acceptable niche in a post-agrarian, post-industrial economy where honest work, producing useful goods and services in exchange for a living wage, is almost impossible to find. Meaning no harm whatsoever, many simply run afoul of the monumental Byzantine books of legal code which keep thousands of government lawyers busy in their maintenance. And then, when these desperate citizens attempt to remove themselves entirely from the equation, the government intervenes extravagantly to stop them. But then we must remember that the BOP is running a business, a warehouse of sorts, and the prisoners represent a sort of troublesome, self-conscious merchandise. While some spoilage is inevitable, the good businessman does everything possible to avoid such losses. And then, of course, we must also consider the public relations aspect. The government is providing justice and rehabilitation. If too many citizens die in the process, some taxpayers may question the state's sincerity. On the fifth floor, I do indeed find my own private cell and personal guard as well. Here I exchange my brown jumpsuit, socks, and government briefs for a single all-purpose garment, a heavy quilted shipping blanket cut and stitched to the shape of a hospital gown. This apparel offers some respectable insulation from the chilly cell, but the Velcro closures are long since worn out and useless, so the only way to keep this garment on is with both arms wrapped around myself to hold it in place. My bare legs and feet quickly grow cold, very cold, as I pace the five brief steps which make up the cell's longest dimension, and I soon retreat to the relative comfort of a fetal position on the vinyl mat which passes for a bed. With a careful wrapping procedure, I'm just able to cover most of my body. I try to sleep, but the cell is brightly lit at all times, and this is an obstacle for me. With further maneuvering, I am just able to withdraw my head and hands like a turtle retreating into its shell. But as soon as the guard notices this, he yells at me, Show me your head and hands! It seems, apparently, that the truly determined suicidal prisoner may actually off themselves with no weapon other than their bare hands, although I'm sure I don't know how this could even be possible. I had a brief conversation with my guard through the plate glass, but one has to yell, and even then it's difficult. I described the injustice of my presence at MDC and explained that I was only a political activist fighting for democracy. I quizzed him, as I often did with guards and fellow prisoners alike, to elicit his understanding on this subject, and found him better educated than most. My guard, a product of private schools, actually knew that democracy was born in ancient Greece. But even he failed to realize that the essential defining element was random selection, not voting. Voting, amongst the aristocracy, had elevated Draco, a nobleman renowned for his cruelty and later exiled. 
but he also introduced random selection of lawmakers and extended the franchise to all. So, despite his cruelty, Draco opened the door for later reforms, and we do undoubtedly owe him a great debt. Still, it is said that the Constitution he handed down specified the death penalty even for an offense as minor as the theft of a head of cabbage. I feel bad for the parents of this prison guard. I'm sure they expected more from their investment in private education. Still, good jobs are exceedingly difficult to come by these days, and I expect this guard, with lots of overtime and respectable benefits, probably does better, economically, than many of his former classmates. The guard suggests that I should hold my head up and take the government to trial, rather than accepting a plea or ending my life. I only need one juror, he says, which is true, but I still have little faith in my ability to prevail. The government, I feel certain, will call experts with military credentials to describe my modest pyrotechnic as a powerful bomb. The FBI has already done this. I will have no credible witnesses to support my contention that the device is harmless because I am hostage to an overburdened public defender with dozens of other clients. If the courtroom is a playing field, it's about as far from level as you can get. The jury provides an appearance of fairness, but the government manages this stage completely, and while even a show trial may occasionally defy expectations, acquittal is the exception, whereas government steamrolling is the norm. I've heard this story many times now from my fellow prisoners. It is the reason why the vast majority of cases never go to trial. Not because the defendants are all guilty, but because innocence alone counts for very little in our system. I return to my mat and resume my turtle-like sleeping stance. Now, however, the guard is willing to cut me some slack, and I sleep through the night. <clears throat> in the morning, I wake to the watchful gaze of a new guard, who proffers the first of several hundred identical breakfasts that I will receive at MDC. He balances half pints of skim milk, boxes of bran flakes, and cake on the small ledge in the middle of my cell door, and I accept this breakfast. The bran flakes are wooden and might make a fine building product, but they scarcely seem like food. The skim milk is several days past the due date. Does the BOP get a special deal for this? And the cake is so named only for lack of a better word. The flat sheet cake is baked by convicts on the third floor from enormous bags of mystery mix, which does undoubtedly include flour and sugar, but the origins are dubious. Like many food products which enter the prison system, there is a label affixed that states, not intended for human consumption. Make of this what you will. But I like the idea of cake for breakfast, if nothing else, because it always reminds me of Marie Antoinette. She, at least, would surely get a good laugh out of this meal. Lunch and dinner look good, only by comparison. But many prisoners, I later learn, bypass breakfast entirely and sleep until lunch, which is served around 11 a.m. I am depressed and quite possibly suicidal, but... Even so, I refuse to adopt this custom. I do not wish to die in pieces by sleeping my sentence away. 
I would rather die all at once with a blade or a noose. After breakfast, I resume pacing, but am shortly joined by a member of the psychiatric staff who is there to assess and see if I may be moved into the general population, thus freeing up this valuable suicide watch cell for some other prisoner whose needs may be more acute. Once again, I am yelling through the glass in an effort to communicate with this woman whose uniform includes a tactical vest to protect her from her patients. Presumably, the inmates do not have firearms, but knives are not uncommon, and the Kevlar should protect her vitals in the event that some disturbed prisoner attacks her with a shiv. We discuss my family and dogs, symbols of my apparent commitment to the world of the living, and I assure her that I am neither a threat to myself or others, thus giving her the liberty to reassign my cell and transfer me to the third floor general population intake unit, where the new arrivals await their final unit assignments. My new health care provider does not use the Hamilton Depression Scale or any other recognized diagnostic tool to assess my condition, which is good, because I am under some pressure to persuade her that I'm healthy, and the less I need to lie, the better. Otherwise, this Arctic isolation therapy, which the federal government has pioneered, will continue. At all costs, I must escape the suicide watch protocol. It is torture. <clears throat> the beatings will continue until morale improves. Call me cynical, but if you like, how else do you describe such medical care? This, quote, apocryphal, perhaps, has been attributed to Captain Bly of HMS Bounty, but accurate or not, the credit certainly seems reasonable, and I suspect that our Justice Department and the British Navy actually have a good deal in common. Both swept innocent citizens off the street in the name of progress while commanding vast commercial empires. But in Imperial Britain, the press-ganged sailors were simply a tool of conquest. In America today, the inmates are the prize themselves. By imprisoning several million citizens within U.S. boundaries, the government has essentially created an internal colony where it may rule with the same impunity that the British once exercised in India. And not unlike that colony, our penal archipelago even produces goods and services with textiles chief among them. The Indian chintz, a cheap print which flooded Europe in the 18th century, may one day be compared with the prison blues of the 21st. Not the textiles or license plates are necessary to this undertaking. This internal colony provides another product. It furnishes security from the dangerous threat of citizens who are black, brown, or simply dirty, either the dirt of poverty or that connected with unclean ideas. So long as the taxpayers buy into this myth, the colony will remain, and the BOP will reign supreme within the walls of its empire. Do you think I exaggerate? The prison laborer earns pennies a day, but the plus-sized, rinsed, blue work jean with suspender buttons from prison blues 
cost $40 a pair. And another retailer, Correctional Industries of Washington State, makes the following claim. Whether you seek general uniforms, safety apparel, duty gear, casual attire, or accessories, CI's sewing operations has what you need. Personalize any attire or accessory by adding logo, logos and lettering with screen printing or embroidered embellishments. Our selection of towels, linens, pillows, mattress covers, and cores are sure to be the perfect fit for any dormitory-style setting. And to complement your purchases, we offer comprehensive laundry services. We can remove stains, wash, dry, waterproof, press, and even bundle institutional linens, industrial clothing, and school sports uniforms. Our full-service laundry also makes alterations, men's, repairs, patches, and replaces zippers and missing buttons. The federal prisoners held at MDC are lucky they can sleep in. Many of their peers at other institutions, state and federal both, are engaged in slave labor. Um, and Federal Prison Industries, otherwise known as Unicor, has annual receipts in the area of $600 million. Most Americans, I think, are blissfully ignorant of these arrangements, but they may receive a wake-up call one of these days if and when, by some accident, they stumble over that hazy line which separates those who sew the blue jeans from those who wear them. Across the street from the Metropolitan Detention Center is an Amazon Fulfillment Center. Orders are filled, but I doubt if the workers find it fulfilling. Like the prisoners at MDC, they're in a locked unit, subject to continuous surveillance, and must submit to a search whenever they leave. Of course, they earn more than prison workers, but and their rents are higher too. At the end of the day, I think we may all spend our golden years eating Dinky D or Alpo under an overpass somewhere. The FBI sent two agents to interview me at Fairton Prison the day before I was released. I'm sure I don't know why they bothered, but there they were. So I vented my standard litany of complaints about the failings of our American system. As I said to them, perhaps I made poor choices in life. I won't dispute this, but the fact remains that I am a hard worker who rarely missed a day in over 40 years until the government locked me up. I don't have a drug habit, never gambled, and didn't consort with prostitutes. Hell, I rarely even took a vacation, and yet I can't afford to retire. My two great indulgences are that I sent my children to private schools and I ate organic food. My body is now thoroughly worn out from four decades of manual labor, yet it appears I'll be painting the homes of the wealthy right until I am physically incapable of continuing. Does this seem right to you? Is this a system that you wish to endorse? I will, to the best of my ability, continue fighting for a more equitable and sustainable system of political economy so long as I am able. One of the two agents then posed a question. If I had a million dollars, would that make a difference? I accepted this as a purely hypothetical proposition and said that it was too late. 
My political convictions were cast in cement. No doubt, if I had run into some money decades ago, it might have softened my views, corrupted me even. But at this late hour, it would make no difference at all. But he wasn't wrong, reducing it all to a question of dollars. There is certainly more to it and other ways of looking at the problem, but much of my bitterness could have been sweetened with the addition of a little cash. To a large degree, my anger is quantifiable as the sum of the places I didn't go and the things I didn't get to experience. All because I was busy scrutinizing the walls of multi-million dollar apartments for minute flaws in order to pay my mortgage and keep my health insurance. A hundred thousand vertical feet of virgin powder in the Wasatch Mountains. A month backpacking in the Olympic National Forest. 500 miles of forest rambling with my dogs. Sleeping in with my wife. These are just a few of the things I missed while I was busy prostrating myself before the altar of the almighty American dollar. Only much, much later did I begin to wonder if this hypothetical, would a million dollars make a difference, might have been a serious offer. Is it possible that the FBI viewed me as a threat worth buying off? Are they actually afraid I may yet pull off some great feat of traumatic activism, thus opening a new front in the struggle against predatory, unregulated capitalism? I think the answer is almost certainly no. I can hardly imagine the FBI trying to buy me off, but who can say? Did I miss a tremendous opportunity here? Am I really a dangerous man? Well, friends, that's all for now, but I hope you'll join me again very soon as we descend further into the abyss of the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, New York, a place where no trees will ever grow and where, in fact, even daylight is exceedingly difficult to come by. Until then, folks... <laughs>